Trib Force's mole at Global Community Headquarters, New Babylon. Gustav Zuckermandel Jr., a.k.a. Zeke, or Z, early twenties. Document and appearance forger, lost father to guillotine, strong building Chicago. Enoch Dumas, late twenties, Spanish-American shepherd of thirty-one members of the Place Ministry in Chicago, recently relocated to the Strong Building. Steve Plank, alias Pinkerton Stevens, fifty-ish, former editor of Global Weekly, former public relations director for Carpathia, assumed dead in wrath of the Lamb earthquake, undercover with GC Peacekeeping Forces, Colorado. Georgiana Stavros, 16, escaped Loyalty Mark Center in Ptolemaeus, Greece, with Albies and Buck's help, captured by G.C. Whereabouts and well-being unknown. George Sebastian, mid-twenties, former San Diego-based U.S. Air Force combat helicopter pilot, captured by G.C. while on Trib Force assignment, held northeast of Ptolemaeus, Greece. The Enemies Nikolai Jedi Carpathia, mid-thirties, former president of Romania, former secretary-general United Nations, self-appointed global community potentate, assassinated in Jerusalem, resurrected at G.C. Palace Complex, New Babylon. Leon Fortunato, early fifties, former supreme commander and Carpathia's right hand, now Most High Reverend Father of Carpathianism, proclaiming the potentate as the risen God, G.C. Palace, New Babylon. Viv Ivans, mid-sixties, lifelong friend of Carpathia, G.C. Operative, G.C. Palace, New Babylon. Suhail Akbar, early forties, Carpathia's Chief of Security and Intelligence, G.C. Palace, New Babylon. Prologue From Desecration Had Rayford not been petrified, he might have enjoyed that Zion looked the same in the Jordan sun as he did around the strong building. It was Abdullah and Rayford who looked like Middle Easterners in their robes. Zion looked more like a rumpled professor. Who is your pilot? a GC guard asked. Zion nodded to Abdullah, and they were led to a chopper, once in the air, Rayford called Chloe in Greece. Where are you? he said. We're on the road, Dad, but something's not right. Mac had to hotwire this vehicle. Chang didn't tell the guy to leave the keys? Apparently not. And of course you know Mac. He's going to hop out and thumb a ride with some other GC while we drive merrily into town, trying to pass ourselves off as assignees from New Babylon to check on the Judahite raids. You ready? Am I ready? Why didn't you make me stay in Chicago with my family? What kind of a father are you? He knew she was kidding, but he couldn't muster a chuckle. Don't make me wish I had. Don't worry, Dad. We're not coming out of here without Sebastian. When Abdullah came within sight of Petra, Chaim was in the high place with a quarter million people inside and another three-quarter million round about the place, waving to the helicopter. A large flat spot had been prepared, 
but the people covered their faces when the craft kicked up a cloud of dust. The shutting down of the engine and the dissipating of the dust were met with applause and a cheer as Zion stepped out and waved shyly. Chaim announced, Dr. Zion ben Judah, our teacher and mentor and man of God. Rayford and Abdullah climbed down unnoticed and sat on a nearby ledge. Zion quieted the crowd and began, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, our Messiah and Savior and Lord, allow me to first fulfill a promise made to friends and scatter here the ashes of a martyr for the faith. He pulled from his pocket the tiny urn and removed the lid, shaking the contents into the wind. She defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by her testimony, for she did not love her life but laid it down for him. Abdullah nudged Rayford and looked up. In the distance came a screaming pair of fighter bombers. Within seconds, the people noticed them too and began to murmur. In New Babylon, Chang hunched over his computer, watching what Carpathia saw transmitted from the cockpit of one of the bombers. Chang layered the audio from the plane with the bug in Carpathia's office. It became clear that Leon, Viv, Suhail, and Carpathia's secretary had gathered around the monitor in the potentate's office. Target locked, armed, one pilot said. The other repeated him. Here we go, Nikolai said, his voice high-pitched. Here we go! Zion held out his hands. Do not be distracted, beloved, for we rest in the sure promises of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we have been delivered to this place of refuge that cannot be penetrated by the enemy of his son. He had to wait out the roar of the jets as they passed over them and banked in the distance. Yes, Nikolai squealed. Show yourselves, then launch upon your return. As the machines of war returned, Zion said, Please join me on your knees, heads bowed, hearts in tune with God, secure in his promise that the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Rayford knelt but kept his eyes on the bombers. As they screamed into range again, they simultaneously dropped payloads headed directly for the high place, epicenter of a million kneeling souls. Yes! Carpathia howled. Yes, 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 yes! Rejoice, O heavens, you citizens of heaven, rejoice. Be glad. But woe to you people of the world, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. Revelation chapter 12, verse 12 Chapter 1 Rayford Steele had endured enough brushes with death to know that the cliché was more than true. 
Not only did your life flash before your mind's eye, but your senses were also on high alert. As he knelt awkwardly on the unforgiving red rock of the city of Petra in ancient Edom, he was aware of everything, remembered everything, thought of everything and everybody. Despite the screaming global community fighter bombers, larger than any he had ever seen or even read about, he heard his own concussing heart and wheezing lungs. New to the robe and sandals of an Egyptian, he tottered on sore knees and toes. Rayford couldn't bow his head, couldn't tear his eyes from the sky and the pair of warheads that seemed to grow larger as they fell. Beside him his dear compatriot, Abdullah Smith, prostrated himself, burying his head in his hands. To Rayford, Smitty represented everyone he was responsible for, the entire tribulation force around the world. Some were in Chicago, some in Greece, some with him in Petra. One was in New Babylon, and as the Jordanian groaned and leaned into him, Rayford felt Abdullah shuddering. Rayford was scared, too. He wouldn't have denied it. Where was the faith that should have come from seeing God so many times deliver him from death? It wasn't that he doubted God, but something deep within, his survival instinct, he assumed, told him he was about to die. For most people, doubt was long gone by now. There were few skeptics anymore. If someone were not a Christ follower by now, probably he had chosen to oppose God. Rayford had no fear of death itself or of the afterlife. Providing heaven for his people was a small feat for the God who now manifested himself miraculously every day. It was the dying part Rayford dreaded. For while his God had protected him up to now and promised eternal life when death came, he hadn't spared Rayford injury and pain. What would it be like to fall victim to the warheads? Quick, that was sure. Rayford knew enough about Nikolai Carpathia to know the man wouldn't cut corners now. While one bomb could easily destroy the million people who, all but Rayford, it seemed, tucked their heads as close to between their legs as they were able, two bombs would vaporize them. Would the flashes blind him? Would he hear the explosions, feel the heat, be aware of his body disintegrating into bits? Whatever happened, Carpathia would turn it into political capital. He might not televise the million unarmed souls showing their backsides to the global community as the bombs hurtled in, but he would show the impact, the blasts, the fire, the smoke, the desolation— he would illustrate the futility of opposing the new world order. Rayford's mind argued against his instincts. Dr. Ben-Judah believed they were safe, that this was a city of refuge, the place God had promised. And yet Rayford had lost a man here just days before. On the other hand, the ground attack by the G.C. had been miraculously thwarted at the last instant. Why couldn't Rayford rest in that? Trust, believe, have confidence. Because he knew warheads. And as these dropped, parachutes puffed from each, slowing them and allowing them to drop simultaneously straight down toward the assembled masses.
Rayford's heart sank when he saw the black pole attached to the nose of each bomb. The G.C. had left nothing to chance. Just over four feet long, as soon as those standoff probes touched the ground, they would trip the fuses, causing the bombs to explode above the surface. Chloe Steele Williams was impressed with Hannah's driving. Unfamiliar vehicle, unfamiliar country, yet the Native American who had been uncannily morphed into a New Delhi Indian handled the appropriated GC Jeep as if it were her own. She was smoother and more self-confident than Mac McCullum had been, but of course he had spent the entire drive across the Greek countryside talking. I know this is all new to you gals, he had said, causing Chloe to catch Hannah's eye and wink. If anybody could get away with unconscious chauvinism, it was the weathered pilot and former military man who referred to all the women in the Trib Force as little ladies, but didn't seem consciously condescending. I gotta get to the airport, he told them, which is that away, and y'all have gotta get into Ptolemaeus and find the co-op. He pulled over and hopped out. Which of you two is driving again? Hannah climbed behind the wheel from the back seat, her starched white G.C. officer's uniform still crisp. Mac shook his head. You two look like a couple of wax, but of course they don't call them that anymore. He looked up and down the road, and Chloe felt compelled to do the same. It was noon, the sun high and hot and directly overhead, no clouds. She saw no other vehicles and heard none. Don't worry about me, Mac added. Somebody'll be along and I'll catch a ride. He lifted a canvas bag out of the back and slung it over his shoulder. Mac also carried a briefcase. Gustav Zuckermandel Jr., whom they all knew as Zeke or Z, had thought of everything. The lumbering young man in Chicago had made himself into the best forger and disguiser in the world, and Chloe decided that the three of them alone were the epitomes of his handiwork. It was so strange to see Mac with no freckles or red hair. His face was dark now, his hair brown, and he wore glasses he didn't need. She only hoped Z's work with her dad and the others at Petra proved as effective. Mac set down his bags and rested his forearms atop the driver's side door, bringing his face to within inches of Hannah's. You kids got everything memorized and all? Hannah looked at Chloe, fighting a smile.